Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, and welcome to the show. This is Beckett. Today, we are going to go into the Wayback Machine, all the way back to 2016, and our coverage of Elizabeth Keckley. Because something very exciting is happening this month. Long, long ago, when it was still warm outside, we were sent to our nation's capital to record some segments for the History Channel's new three-episode documentary about Abraham Lincoln, since we had covered Mary Todd Lincoln. And we thought that since Elizabeth Keckley might not have the name recognition that Mary Todd Lincoln does, that we would bring her story back to you today. In addition, don't forget that we did cover Mary Todd Lincoln in two episodes, and links to her shows will be found at thehistorychicks.com. We will send you notices on our assorted social media platforms the second we see ourselves on the screen. Very exciting. A quick warning before we begin. If you're listening with children, you might want to listen to this episode by yourself first. While we're not explicit exactly, we do feature some mature subjects. We will leave you to decide for yourselves. Just wanted to give you a heads up. And now, on with the show. And here's your 30-second summary. Elizabeth Keckley was born the same year as her friend Mary Todd Lincoln, although Elizabeth was born as an enslaved person. She eventually bought her freedom and built a very successful business, twice, all before she, too, realized her own White House dream. The end. Elizabeth Hobbs was born in the month of February, 1818, the daughter of an enslaved woman named Aggie Hobbs and her owner, Armistead Burrell, in Dinwiddie County, Virginia. Yes, already in that first sentence, we encounter some uncomfortable truths. Here's another. Mama herself was of mixed race and had likely been the product of another such union. Now, willing or not, consent or not, with such power in one of the hands, there could never really be consent. That is another dark layer of the peculiar institution of slavery that we're going to unfortunately have to get into a little bit later also. Mama, known to the family as Mammy Aggie, had the responsibility of being the nanny for Armistead and his wife Mary's, ultimately, 11 children. She was certainly beloved by the children of the family, and she was considered one of the family's most valuable slaves. Doesn't that make you feel kind of skeevy to think about, like, she's the most valuable one, monetarily. (laughs) Well, she kept everybody dressed, you know, in the family and every slave. She made all their clothes as well as doing her daily work. Her sister Charlotte was Mrs. Burrell's, I guess you call it ladies' maid, but you're right. Mammy Aggie made all the rest of everyone else's clothes. Yeah. Her father of record was a George Pleasant Hobbs, who was also a slave, but was owned by somebody down the street. They didn't live in the same house. This marriage, because it was a marriage, but it wasn't a legal one. I mean, like paperwork wise. It didn't hold the owners to do or not do anything at all. And the very fact that the Burls allowed what was called an abroad marriage for Mammy Aggie was considered pretty lenient of them because it would divide your servant, that word again, your servant's loyalties against you to have ties to another house, I guess. But I think it was really true love. I do. Oh, I I agree totally. George and Aggie could both write and read. So there were letters between the two of them. He gushed over Lizzie. 
Very, very rare. They could both read and write. Still illegal. But yet both of them were literate. Now, I will tell you it's probably self-serving on the rural's part because if you can have the nanny teach the littles their letters, that goes firmly into the one less thing department. So I imagine it was a little self-serving. Yeah, probably. But good for Aggie and good for George and good for Lizzie because they taught her too. So Papa Burl, the white man in the question, the biological father, was the only son in a family that still believed in primogeniture, which means the oldest son inherited most of the property, in this case an estate, and all the slaves in the family, which were passed down in wills from father to son. And it was considered a matter of some pride in this family that the slaves of this family could trace their ancestry back through the Burl family to the point where they had been stolen from their home country, at least to the point where they had first been sold on American soil. It's good to know, but it's sad that they have to know that. Yeah. I mean, just to be able to trace their genealogy was probably something that they could hold dear, you know, but yeah. the fact that they had to chase their genealogy to where it went is, is the heartbreaking part. So Papa had inherited his fortune, small as it was, when he was only 11, and he had five sisters to support. So unlike all his cousins in this aristocratic family, he'd never been sent to college, which wrinkled him very, very much. And let's just say, financially speaking, his life is a downward spiral from here. Although he owned 23 slaves when little Lizzie was born. The same financial panic of 1819 that caused Mary Todd Lincoln's papa to have to give up his dry goods business um, kind of hit this family hard. Not just this family. It's kind of like Downton Abbey. You know, the, the latter seasons where you could see fortunes and ruin happening all around you. So it wasn't just him, for sure. They had to sell the estate. They had to sell some land. They sold pretty much most of the outdoor mail slaves, and move themselves to increasingly smaller accommodations. And he had to get a job. Uh, he moved his family and the slaves to Hamden Sydney College, go Tigers, where he could work mm -hmm. as a steward. And I say he could work with big quotes around it because his slaves could do the work. They would haul the water and haul the wood and bring meals to students and do odd maintenance jobs around the college and in return, they got paid by those students, but the slaves did all the work. Oh, yeah. They cooked and they cleaned and milked cows and minded chickens and gardened because you can't just call the local restaurant supply and get those giant number 10 cans of soup delivered. It's all scratch. <laughs> so a lot of hands had to be put to the, you know, the grindstone. Lizzie lived in her mother's cabin. And all the children, there were many little children in this family, um, were kind of brought up willy-nilly by all the female slaves. So there were Aunt Charlotte and her daughters, who were cousins, blood cousins, and several young Burls, white children, who, if you think about it, were even closer relations as they were her half-siblings. I keep having to remind people, she's part of this family by blood. Exactly. And actually, her first assignment at the age of four was to take care of one of those half-siblings. Mrs. Burl had asked her to come and watch her newborn baby, who, by coincidence, was also named Elizabeth. Lizzie's job was to rock the cradle and keep the flies off of the baby's face and take care of her and get someone if she cried. The promise that Lizzie was given that made her so excited was that she would be getting the job 
of Elizabeth's little maid, which was an in-house job. Lizzie was excited about it. And the day started off good enough. She was, again, four years old and four-year-olds can get a little rough with things. She was rocking the cradle and unintentionally rocked too hard. And little baby Elizabeth tumbled out. Well, Lizzie didn't know what to do. She yelled for help, but she was also thinking, maybe I'm not supposed to touch this baby. So she reached for the closest thing, which was a fireplace shovel, to try and scoop up the baby. But the commotion brought Mrs. Burl in, and she was not amused at all. Yeah, Mrs. Burl, she saved the baby and told someone to give Lizzie a whipping, who, uh, you know, I don't know, some severely hardened whoever it was, because they whipped her with a whip, a actual whip. I mean, lashing, blood, just in case she had to be reminded what her place really was in this family, I guess. She'd been so proud of having this grown-up responsibility and being trusted with the new little baby, Miss Elizabeth. She was showing off her little apron to everyone and skipping around and singing and so proud to kind of be important and I just, you know, I'm sure there was no skipping after this. And she did refer to baby Elizabeth as her little pet later. So I don't think she took her justifiable rage out on the little baby. I I think over the course of the years, she realized where the rage should be directed. But this says so much about her as a person, because later in her memoir, she she toned it all down and said, quote, the blows were not administered with a light hand. The severity of the lashing has made me remember the incident well. But really, beat the crap out of her, right, Beckett? Ugh, I just, I, you know, she's four years old. I know. And this was her first job. Well, Mr. Burl was making arrangements for George Hobbs, remember, real papa, the one who actually left her, to come live with Aggie at the college. And I don't know that it was paternalistic or anything. George had been visiting the past Christmas and past Easter, and he was a very good worker, and he was quite an asset. And between the owners, you know, one guy would get labor and the other guy would be relieved of feeding and housing a servant. So it was a good deal for them both. But unfortunately, the other man felt like he couldn't go on financially and had to go ahead and move to Tennessee. And so the dream was dead. And even if he'd wanted to, which he made no attempt to, but even if he wanted to, Mr. Burl's financial situation, he could not have afforded to buy Aggie's husband. And they never saw him again. Although, remember, they could read and write. So they were able to write to each other, but it's not the same. I mean, we know it's not the same. Well, Aggie dropped her mask and cried. You you know what I mean by the mask. I mean, there wasn't an actual mask. Just the face, the face you have to wear to hide all the rage and the humiliation. I don't know. But she started to cry in front of her white owners, to which Mrs. Burl said very sensitively, oh, brace yourself for the following. For heaven's sake, Aggie, there are plenty more men around here. If you want a husband so badly, just go find another one. Ow. I think that was where Aggie genuinely started to hate the Burls. Although, you know, I don't think the mask dropped again. And she sure was there for 30 more years or whatever. But I think that's where her heart broke a little bit. I, w- I would think a lot of it. Well, George uh. never stopped trying to find a way to bring his family back together, but unfortunately he died before he was able to pull it off and they really never saw each other again. Oh, but in his letters, he would say things like, tell my darling little Lizzie to be a good girl and learn her book. Kiss her for me and tell her I will come to see her someday. Very sad. 
Um, Aggie taught Lizzie to sew from about the age of three. Now, of course, we know it's a skill that would ultimately lead to her freedom. But at the time, Aggie had a strategy. The more versatile, the more multitasking a person you are, the more valuable and the least likely to be sold of a slave you were in a house. And everybody, now that the master was experiencing financial difficulties, it was terrifying to know that at any moment, you know, the slave market was on everybody's mind. And Aggie was trying to give her daughter some, some survival skills. Well, speaking of financial difficulties, Thomas Jefferson, yes, the Thomas Jefferson, had just opened a rival university to the one where Mr. Burrell worked. It's now the University of Virginia, by the way, still exists. And enrollment just dropped. And since Mr. Burrell was paid on a per-student basis, his income fell again. And just what assets did he have? They are human assets. Who was going to be next? The, the families were always wondering, you know, who's, whose child is going to be sold? At one point, and this is, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most heartbreaking, um, Burl had accumulated a debt for purchasing pigs. So he looked over his supply of people and decided on one that could probably sell enough to pay the debt. And it was the five-year-old son of the cook named Little Joe. Burl told his mother to dress him and his best clothes and send him to the house, which she did, and he showed up. Well, once he was there, he was weighed and inspected and sold. He was put in a wagon with his new master and taken down the street. And at this point, his mom is like, oh my gosh, I know it just happened. And she starts crying. But he's like, no, 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 don't worry. He's just going away. He'll be back tomorrow. But he was never back. When the mother did finally accept that he wasn't coming back, she started to grieve like you can imagine. And there's this mask thing again. Burl thought that a sad and weeping slave was not a good slave to be around. So what did he do? He had her beaten. It is just intolerable. Mr. Burl often, often threatened to sell Lizzie too, to her face, his own child, though probably he would never actually go through with that because though people looked the other way somewhat about those slave children who sure did look like some man in the family, bad press, bad press followed a man who sold these particular kids out of the family. That was like a line too far. Well, I'm glad that there's a line someplace because (laughs) they don't seem to be very large or, you know, far enough away, so many lines to cross. Well, this next part is really, really not good. Not that the first part was awesome. <laughs> Lizzie was loaned to the oldest Burl son, Robert, her half-brother. I'm going to keep reminding you. Upon the occasion of his marriage, Robert's wife, Anna, was intelligent, but she she had been kind of raised in expectation of one kind of life. She was orphaned and then raised by some relatives, and she fully expected to go on with her education But instead, she had to teach school, and it was like a big come down, and her life really was not like she had planned it at all. Completely aware that Lizzie was Robert's half-sister, she was also completely aware that Lizzie regarded this latest assignment as a big come down, which it was. She's coming from a house in which there were plenty of workers to shoulder the load, and now she's the only servant. There's that word again. I know. And this Lizzie, of course, had all the work to do. It was a come down, and I just don't know that Lizzie was very good at hiding her disdain. I don't know. No, everything that I read, she was very, um, you know, proud of the things that she could do, and she carried herself with a lot of confidence. So I'm sure Anna didn't like that. And Anna really hadn't been raised to take care of a household like this. And Robert was absolutely no help. 
Well, okay. So from Anna's perspective, I guess, I can kind of understand some of her desperation. You know, some husbands are go-getters. Some husbands are decisive and bold. You know, this is not that guy. It was not that guy. He was so retiring and mild that for a period of time, his wife around town was known as Widow Burl because she was in charge of everything and there was just no man around as far as anyone could tell. So this is how retiring Robert was, although he was a preacher, but the tradesmen didn't know he existed. That says a lot about his preaching if people in town didn't know that he was preaching at that church. (laughs) Robert had moved them far away from family. The babies kept coming. And here's Anna. She'd been left to try to manage everything. Have you ever heard that expression, like, I'm going to kick the cat? You absorb all the stress of the day and then you go home and kick the cat because that's the person that's not going to be able to get back at you about anything. Lizzie's the cat. Anytime Anna wanted to blow up, Lizzie got an earful or a faceful. Anna Anna shared a lot with Mary Lincoln in that she would go somewhere and her tart tongue would get the better of her and she would immediately realize she said the wrong thing and it was too late and she would come home and stew about it. And then stewing about it meant treating Lizzie like poo. This almost sounds like we're trying to justify and make Anna, you know, sound nice. Like we, we learned that Mary was actually a very nice person later on, but I got nothing nice to say about Anna. Oh yeah, Anna never felt like Lizzie had the... Proper deference that she, Anna, was entitled to. And since her husband was a milk toast, (laughs) I love that word. She decided she would ask a male neighbor to take control of this situation and show Lizzie that she had to exhibit some respect to her owner. So Lizzie was often loaned out to this neighbor who was a principal of a nearby boys school. Um, She often watched his children and it wasn't weird for her to be sent over there. And one day after she got the kids up to bed, he told her to follow him into his study and told her to take down her dress because he was going to whip her. Of course, Lizzie refused. She asked him why, and he told her he didn't need a reason. Well, she told him that only her master could beat her, and that his name was Bingham, and that if Mr. Bingham would have to be stronger than her to give the beating, but he was a lot stronger. Oh, yeah, he he tied her up and whipped her. I'm talking break the skin, blood running whip. She staggered home after all this, and here are the burls sipping their tea and just in front of the fire or whatever, and asked why did... This happened. Why did you let him do this to me? And Robert, her half-brother, mild-mannered, milk-toast man, stood up and hit her with a chair. And then the next day went and preached a sermon in his church. And it wasn't that this was the only time that Anna thought, okay, Lizzie's learned her her lesson. No, it happened again the next week. You know, the same treatment from Bingham and the next week. Although eventually, and wow, he told her that he decided it was a sin to beat her anymore. And he vowed to stop. He was in tears and really dramatic. It was a sin to beat her anymore. But I guess it wasn't a sin to beat her the first time. Uh, This is the same guy that he had elementary school age boys in his school. Let me just add this. This is the same guy that subdued a rebellion at his school by pointing a gun at people in his classroom. Nice guys all over, aren't there? Bingham bowed out. Then her brother decided to give a try at, quote, breaking her rebellious spirit. I don't get this. I don't get this. Lizzie said that she would die before she let these people conquer her. And I think she was very serious about trying not to show her emotion while she was being beaten. He hit her with a broom handle until even Anna, who A, started this whole thing, and B, 
is no fresh daisy of awesomeness herself, Anna fell to her knees and was weeping and begging him to stop. Well, you know, it's one thing to tell somebody to beat a slave, and it's another thing entirely to actually witness the violence of it. And I think she probably just, you know, she couldn't handle that, but she'd had it going on for so long. And the master can't be charged for, quote, disciplining a slave. Like, no matter what you do, you know. And these people didn't even learn anything from this because she wrote to her mother right after this whole series of incidents, Mistress seems intent on laying me low so that psychological abuse just went merrily along. I hardly expect to see a happy day in this place, she said. Um, this was all happening right as Mary Lincoln was entering society up at her sister's house, by the way. So they're both 18 years old and oh, how their lives have taken different paths. Oh, completely, completely. Lizzie is looking around and she is trapped here forever. As far as she's concerned for the rest of her life, there's no one that could help her. Because as far as society was concerned, she's in her proper place. And all she could do is write carefully worded messages of complaint to her mother, Aggie, who honestly could help her exactly as much as Susan and I can help her from here in 2016. That is to say, not at all. Not at all. I mean, it might have been a little cathartic for Lizzie to write the letters, but can you imagine getting those letters and not being able to do anything about it from your child? There's only one tiny ray of sunshine before another storm comes. The workload was increasing exponentially at home because Anna, tired of waiting for her husband to get some gumption, I guess, <laughs> decided to open a school. She had, in fact, taught before her marriage. So these students actually might have learned something that's not <sighs> always the case in schools of this time. But she had to take in 20 day students, 20 boarders. And of course, by now she had four or five, six kids. Uh, you know, timeline varies. They hired more help, borrowed more slaves. And so Lizzie was not the main focus of her mistress's wrath anymore. There were plenty of other people to grievously disappoint her. <laughs> no kidding. The Burls who, you know, okay, maybe they started to redeem themselves. They stopped because they either allowed or encouraged a neighboring plantation owner to rape Lizzie for four years. This guy, this Alexander Kirkland, was a six foot eight giant, giant of a man who began preying on Lizzie, forcing her into sex with him um, just for years and years as he fell deeper into drink. He started to beat his wife. He lost his money, lost his mind. If this had been a white woman, even once, not even, like, not even once, if you looked askance at her, her brothers would have shot this guy Kirkland. But a black woman, a slave, well, you know, that Kirkland, he's always been the black sheep of that family. And you know what temptresses those people are? Number one, no one saves you. But number two, everyone knows. Layer on layer of humiliation and, ugh. Until one day, when Lizzie was 24, she bore a baby. She actually loved this baby very much, and she named him after the man that she considered her father, the man that she loved as her father, and her child's name was George Pleasant Hobbs. Well, let me just say, this is the third generation of Lizzie's family born or conceived under these circumstances. Okay, well, this is probably a really great place to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out if Lizzie catches a break.
Susan said that Lizzie might be catching a break. It's some sort of relief. Anyway, I'm not sure we'd call it a break. But when little George was four months old, Lizzie was sent back to her old mistress, Mary Burl, who was now living as a widow with her daughter, Anne, and Anne's husband, Hugh Garland. And Lizzie became the mammy. You know I'd rather say nanny, but that was just the term they used as the mammy. Yeah. To, to all the Garland children... Who, after all, I remind you again, were her nieces and her nephews, as Anne Garland was her half-sister. <laughs> I have to keep reminding you, I feel like, because the situation is so strange. No, I, well, I, I, the sad part is it wasn't strange back then, you know, but to us, to our ears, yeah. Yes, I, I think you should keep reminding us. Okay, as seems inevitable with any white people Lizzie was associated with, Mr. Garland, though intelligent and reasonable, now begins his financial descent. So not long after Lizzie got there, in fact, the house and furniture and slaves were all put up as collateral on a loan. These were not good economic times. The family first moved to a giant town called Petersburg, population 15,000. Salute! But Lizzie was amazed. I mean, this is the biggest place she'd ever been. She was amazed at the free black population and about the successful entrepreneurs among that population, mostly women. You know, laundresses and domestics, but working for themselves. Eyes opened, I think. And a little spark, maybe. Then, Mr. Garland decided he had to be bold. He had to be bold and make an epic move to the West, which, at this time and in this place, meant St. Louis. It's a town we seem to be visiting quite a bit lately. Not just because it's uh, three and a half hours down our street. That is true. <laughs> and it is kind of down one street. You get on 70 and head yep. east. Mr. Garland's new law practice was not doing very well. And so he decided to hire Aggie out as a seamstress. But Lizzie volunteered to go instead. You know, like, my mother's never been away from home, and to send her among strangers would be very cruel. I will do it instead. You say that so calmly. I got the impression that she said it not as calmly, that she was furious because she hated that idea, you know? Maybe she was full of passion because it was mm -hmm. very exciting. Yeah. This metropolis of 78,000 people, I mean, now... 78,000 people barely qualifies for a McDonald's unless you're on a major interstate. But back then, it was a major metropolis. St. Louis was fashionable. It was up to date. And St. Louis was ready to spend money. She was a very, uh, she was tall and she was considered very beautiful, quite graceful. And she had a confidence about her that could only be born you know what I mean? Like she, mm -hmm. it, it, she couldn't teach herself this confidence. I mean, where would she have learned it? Um, it was just internal. And Lizzie was good. She was very good. And soon she had both a large roster of clients and a reputation. Her bodices fit like wallpaper, someone said. Her taste was exquisite. She could take your idea and transform it into more than you ever thought you could wish for. And she was earning quite a bit of money. But all the money went to Mr. Garland. Dun, dun, dun. In fact, she supported him and his 17 dependents, slave and free, for well over two years. And she still had to mind the children when she got home and whatever else when she wasn't out with clients. Like, so much of her entire existence, it was shockingly, like, I mean, unfair seems very mild. I don't know what a strong enough word is. It's probably four letters. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. At 32 years of age, Lizzie received a proposal of marriage from a free black man who she'd known quite a number of years from way back home in Virginia, but she wouldn't marry him, even though she felt what she said was more than friendship for him, because children got their free or slave status from their mother and any child she ever had would be a slave, just like her son George, unless she did something about it. But did, like, what is she going to do about it? She went to Mr. Garland and asked him if she could buy her freedom from him and her sons, and if so, give me a number. Frederick Douglass, a famous orator, famous ex-slave, who we have talked about before in several podcasts, had mm-hmm. bought his own freedom this way. It was... Um, it was a legitimate way. You got a receipt. You know, no one could take the fact that you bought yourself. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Garland needed the money for sure, she thought. So this was the way she was going to go with it. And his response was kind of sarcastic, I think. Yeah, he handed her some money and told her to go across the river to Illinois, which was a free state. Oh, if you want to go? Go. You can go anytime. She wasn't going to have that. She wanted those papers in her hand. She wanted to get it legal anywhere. Well, she had been in Illinois, a free state every week for customers, for suppliers. She's been, if she wanted to go that way, she could have gone that way any day of the week. So she didn't need his little coin money. She wanted legitimacy. And that's a place you could be brought back from without papers. If you didn't have, you know, so important to be legitimate to her. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a real offer of freedom. No, not at all. At all. So there's no sense running away with nothing to nothing. One of the main problems that Lizzie had with Mr. Garland is the work he did manage to get. He was a lawyer for the slave owner in the Dred Scott case. (laughs) How's that for claim to fame? Yeah, Americans, Americans, this is one of the cases that we learned by name in high school. But for the rest of you or for those of you who've forgotten as high school is in the midst of time, here's the shortest possible synopsis. Um, Dred Scott and his wife were slaves who were suing for their freedom based on the fact that they lived with their master for years in a free state. So Mr. Garland was representing the master that said, nah, like basically you have no power to sue because you're not a citizen of the United States. And they took it all the way to the Supreme Court. Ultimately, of course, Dred Scott lost, but... In the ensuing aftermath, the widow of the slave owner finally deeded Dred Scott over to the man who had encouraged him to bring the case in the first place, and that man freed him. So at the end of his life, which didn't go on much past when he was freed, Dred Scott was a free man. That was a great little wrap-up of it. Good job. But that's an obstacle for Lizzie. Because if Garland is that involved in protecting slave owners' rights... He might not be too receptive, but she kept after him and kept asking. And finally, he did. He came back with a price. He said, all right, $1,200, which is about $35,000 today. It was a figure. She had a figure she could work for. She had a little bit of hope, but she had no money. Well, she felt free, though, in her hope to go ahead and marry old James Keckley. She was married in the house, and Mr. Garland walked her down the aisle you know, I, I think of that like, you know, in Downton Abbey, here we go back to Downton Abbey, but you know how the the servants were in part of the family, you know? Like sort they, of, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, they were, the family viewed them sort of that way. Yeah. Weird family. 
Go on. <laughs> it is bizarre. So Mr. Keckley was a big disappointment. Number one, he was not a free man, in fact, but a fugitive slave. Complicated. Number two, he drank a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. He was no help at all. He didn't earn any money. In fact, he had so many debts that she was responsible for. So not only is she trying to support the family, come up with spare change for to save for her own freedom and the freedom of her son, now she's paying this guy's debts and she did not want to sign up for that. And then Mr. Garland died. So this could wreck everything. What was going to happen? He's the one that she had to deal with. What what was going to happen? Miss Anne's brother, Armistead Jr. And hey, Lizzie's half-brother. <laughs> I got a lot of them. He came up to deal with the financial puzzle because, you know, ladies and money, that's, you know, we can't have that. But luckily, according to Lizzie, he was an honorable man and he was a very nice man. And Miss Anne, sister Anne, Mm-hmm. did sign a document saying that Lizzie and her son George will be freed upon receipt of $1,200. And a little oddly, um, Armistead Jr. thought they'd better cross this T. Remember long ago, Miss Elizabeth, the coal shovel baby that, uh, <laughs> that Lizzie got a whipping for when she was four, evidently those promises were true so long ago. So family lore, family... Um, how shall I say? Intent was in fact that she had been Miss Elizabeth's actual property since Miss Elizabeth got married. So they had to go get permission from Miss Elizabeth to get her to quote sell Lizzie and George back to Anne. Luckily, no problem though. Luckily, no problem. Return of post. That technicality was taken care of. This is like house elves in Harry Potter. You <laughs> inherit the slave and you have to see if he follows you or. It's crazy. That's a weird technicality that I didn't even anticipate. It was very strange to read. Now, paying this $1,200 was going to be a problem. Lizzie's earnings were not going to add up very quickly at the three or so a day that she could keep hold of. And so she had a plan to go north to New York and apply to one of these mostly Quaker-operated organizations called Vigilance Committees. And they helped slaves buy their freedom or helped fugitive ones out with food and work and basic shelter. Because Lizzie didn't want to go from nothing to nothing, but a lot of people had no other option. And so they just lit out and ran. And when they got to their destination, it was a lot harder than they had expected. And so these organizations were put in place by benevolent religious organizations or freed slave organizations to help them out. But Ms. Anne was alarmed at this. I mean, she trusted Lizzie to come back from work every day and all, but this is 32000 bucks getting on a train. So she demanded, I guess the word collateral, she, signatures. I looked at it like insurance. You need to go get some men to provide insurance that you'll come back. Well, yeah, they'd agree to pay Ms. Anne that $1,200 if Lizzie didn't come back. You know, here's here's where your reputation and the relationship with your clients really comes into play. Five of the husbands of her clients signed immediately. You know, no problem. The sixth would sign. He had no problem signing, but he made sure to make clear to Lizzie that he plainly thought that he had just thrown $200 out the window. You might mean to come back now, but those abolitionists are going to get a hold of you and we'll be waiting in vain. So I'll sign this, but I'm considering my money just lost right now. And she was so distraught by this that she left in tears. I mean, I hope she took his signature anyway. The history doesn't really clarify. <laughs> no, I actually, I read one thing that said that she refused his signature, but the other things were kind of 
uh, ambiguous. Well, if she needed that signature, it would have been a bummer to let those words stick after struggling with so much else that's worse. Easy for me to say. Easy <laughs> for me to say, I know, and I'm sorry about that, but I'm just like, I hope she took his signature anyway and cursed him all the way home or something, but it doesn't really matter. Because fate intervened in the shape of a client, a Mrs. Le Bourgeois, who said that the society ladies had been talking about Lizzie. Because, you know, their husbands had signed these papers and the gossip train started. And they felt ashamed that Lizzie, who, after all, is part of the family, just, mm-hmm. ah, weirdly, <laughs> felt like she had to go up north to strangers and beg for her freedom when it was really her friend's responsibility. And so Mrs. Le Bourgeois said, let me see what I can do for you. Let me just see, because it's better that your friends do this. We are ashamed of ourselves for not thinking of this before. And so she and the rest of the ladies came through. And on November 13th, 1855, Lizzie was free. Her son was free. And not only that, she had a skill that would let her make a life for them both on their own terms, you know. I should add, though, that Mama Aggie wanted to stay with old Miss Burl. She didn't want to be a part of the new life. Maybe that was too scary. Yeah, probably. I mean, this is all she ever knew, and she was getting older. That's the only life she ever knew. Anything else would be scary, you know, like you just said, just too frightening. Well, she did die soon after Aggie did, Mm -hmm. and she was mourned by the whole Burl family. And you know, mammies slash nannies have a special place, and Mm -hmm. the children have grown up with her. They were probably closer to Mammy Aggie than their own mother. Oh, Yeah, And so for what it was worth, Mammy Aggie, her loss was very grievous to the family. Also, Lizzie had no intention of buying her husband's freedom. He had started their relationship with lies and he'd been an albatross ever since. So bye-bye. No intention of buying him. (laughs) No. But again... The it says a lot about her or her ability to edit because later on she said, quote, let me speak of his faults. He proves dissipated and a burden instead of a helpmate with the simple explanation that I lived with him eight years. Let charity draw around him the mantle of silence. Yeah. Like, I am not talking about this guy. He was not any good, but I hung around for eight years and she did. She stayed in St. Louis. She tried to make it work. Lizzie had spent that time paying Mrs. Le Bourgeois and the other clients back as much as she could. They didn't demand it. I assure you that this had been intended as a gift, but Lizzie was determined to owe nobody anything, not even favors. So George, the new free man that he was, he went off to Wilberforce University in Ohio. Go Bulldogs. I love that these schools are still around. (laughs) Yeah, it's still open. It's in Xenia, Ohio, and it's a historically black college. It was evidently a known stop on the Underground Railroad. So there you go. Yeah, there you go. But with nothing really tying her to St. Louis anymore, Lizzie decided to move north and make a fresh start. And so her St. Louis ladies, her clients, had friends and relatives in the likes of Baltimore and Washington, D.C., Mostly Southern society ladies married to prominent men. That seems like good enough material to work with. Pardon the pun. (laughs) (laughs) She found room and board with a family whose father had also bought himself out of slavery. And she found a seamstress job for $2.50 a day. Which, you know, it's not a lot of money, but in modern money, it's about 330 bucks a week. 
I mean, not a lot. You know, she, she still had to support herself. And it wasn't enough for her to get the license that she found out that she needed. If she didn't get this license, she couldn't stay for longer than 10 days. Well, now she had built up her client list really fast and a networking list. So you need a permit, do you? Well, hey, presto. Miss Ringgold knows the mayor. I'll just get him to give it to you for free. Don't worry about it. Check. <laughs> and hey, Miss Ringgold knows this one lady, Miss Robert E. Lee. She needs something fancy to wear when she goes to dinner with the oldest son of Queen Victoria. I'll put you in touch. <laughs> okay, can I just stop and cheer the birdie reference? <laughs> <laughs> I love it when we find him. We cross his path a whole, a whole lot of times. So now we're on an upward swing. Oh, hooray. At last, an upward swing. We've needed one for so long. Let's take a little break. And when we come back, we will see where the momentum takes us. That Lizzie Keckley made, that made an appearance at the Prince of Wales dinner was a hit. It was a big hit. She built up her business very quickly. She had started working with somebody as an assistant dressmaker. She quickly set off on her own. She picked a spot near the White House, which she really wanted to be at. You know, just like Mary Lincoln had said, she wanted to be in the White House. Well, so did Lizzie Keckley. She picked a spot that was next to a hair salon of the women that she was going to be marketing to. Uh, she got business cards and a sign and got busy. And she got really, really busy really fast. And soon, our friend Lizzie was making clothes for most of the Washington ladies who were from the South and who ran Washington society. You know how people on Downton Abbey or other period dramas can often just completely forget themselves, especially at the dinner table. They forget themselves and they carry on these conversations as if the servants weren't there. Here's Lizzie fitting people, sewing, altering. She heard all of the contentious political talk of the day, but from the Southern side. And I was just thinking how completely strange to kind of really need in your heart to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln and the Republicans who were at least in favor of dismantling slavery eventually, if not exactly down with equality for black people yet. You're hoping so much for one side, and here you are, immersed in the wishes of the other side, like secession, war. Well, one of her best clients, Mrs. Verena Davis of Mississippi, was married to Senator Jefferson Davis, a graduate of our old friend Transylvania University. Uh, and he'd been in Washington on and off since the 1840s. So they're, you know, old established and she's a social leader. But when Abraham Lincoln was elected president in 1860, there was this mass exodus of Southerners from the nation's capital. And Mrs. Davis was worried about Lizzie and offered to take her south for, well, what many Southerners believed would be just like a few months of war. We've all seen Gone with the Wind. We know how that was. We're going to kick their booties and then, 
you know, we'll show them and blah, blah, blah. So honestly, honestly and true, I think Mrs. Davis believed she'd be right back. And she said, and again, I think genuinely believed, Lizzie, it won't be safe for you here. Everyone's going to blame the coloreds for the war. You have to come with me. I'll keep you safe. And then when I come back and my husband's elected president of the country, you'll be in the White House just like you wanted. What a deal. How could she possibly pass that up? You know, a freshly minted free woman going back down south. However, it was sort of tempting. The president's wife has a customer. Woo, there's an irony to this offer, which we'll all soon see. And the fact that Lizzie actually kind of seriously considered it for a while should tell you maybe what kind of a relationship there was between Lizzie and Verena Davis. But eventually Lizzie decided, of course, to stay in Washington, watching many, though not all, of her patrons' backs as they abandoned the city. When what to her wondering eyes should appear in her rooms, in her workrooms, but a client named Mrs. McLean, who demanded to be put at the front of the list for a dress. She wanted to wear it to dinner with the new president. She had a, like a week and Mrs. Keckley apologized. I just, I have too much on. I can't possibly make it in time. And then Mrs. McLean said, how about this? In exchange for an introduction to Mrs. President Lincoln, you make me this dress. Oof. That's a horse of a different color, as they say. Even though it meant all-nighters and some juggling and a whole lot of stress, she got it done. Well, you know what I think, and this is two we just mentioned, and I don't think we did it intentionally, two instances where somebody said, you will be in the White House, Lizzie, mm-hmm. will get you in the White House, which means that she's telling people that's where she wants to go. What an advanced business move, you know what I mean? To say, I want this, even though it may seem crazy, that's what I'm working towards, to tell your clients that. Okay, you know? here goes. I want somebody to get Meryl Streep to listen to the show. <laughs> okay, this is what I actually just wrote down. Well, I wrote it down earlier. Uh, let's see. Someone will be able to make it happen. Amy Poehler, Meryl Streep, and Drunk History. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> funny. Okay. You have to tell people what you want. Go, so Lizzie. People should know that we are literally, mm, what, 40 miles apart right now. I know. <laughs> and that's really hilarious. Okay. Hey, you know what? I have a story about Verena Davis. Okay. That I thought was interesting that what happened later after the war, she'd run into the Davises again, sort of. She saw a wax figure of Jefferson Davis wearing women's clothes that supposedly, which wasn't exactly true, he tried to disguise himself in when he was captured. And guess what? It was one of her dresses. Oh. That's that's what was on the wax figure. The true story was Mrs. Davis said, oh, he ha- he was sick and I put my cloak on him and that's all he was wearing. So perhaps somebody found one of her dresses in a trunk or something and put it on this wax figure, but it was one of Lizzie's dresses. Oh, my goodness. I know. We should add, although we did talk about this in the Mary Lincoln podcast, that, yes, Verena Davis's husband did get elected president of the South. And as a matter of fact, I do believe he took office before President Lincoln took office. So we should yes. have put that a little earlier. This is before Mrs. McLean. But, but anyway, Mrs. McLean was as good as her word. The dress arrived fine. And guess what? Some fool waiter had spilled coffee all down the front of a dress that Mrs. Mary Lincoln had planned to wear to this party, a certain party the week after her husband's inauguration. And now she needed a new one on the quick. So if you show up at the president's mansion the day after tomorrow, 
you can have an interview. And in the waiting room, Lizzie came up and found, oh no, because three other ladies had introduced their dressmakers too. So she had some competitors. Because that would be kind of a social coup that your style and your dressmaker is so good that the first lady's wearing it. Well, Lizzie was the last comer. So she was the last one called in and... Honestly, I don't even think it was much of a contest. When Mrs. Lincoln saw her, she came over, though, and she was very friendly because friends in St. Louis had spoken very highly of her skill. You know, Springfield, Illinois is within a day's journey of this fashion mecca Mm -hmm. of St. Louis, you know. Um, And anyone who'd made clothes for Verena Davis, I think that's the password she was in. I don't even know that there needed to be (laughs) too much of an audition. I kind of feel sorry for those other seamstresses. They sort of didn't stand a chance because that's like that's like her trump card, you know? Mary still made it seem like it wasn't a done deal, that she kind of had to audition Lizzie. And then she starts going in about how they're from the West and they're poor. So if you're cheap, I'll have plenty for you to do. <laughs> well, and we remember Mary, at this point anyway, as a hard bargainer, especially when it comes to servants. She's a payer of less than the going wage. And true to form, that money issue did come up. She said, uh, but I cannot afford to be extravagant. Side note, no, she couldn't afford it, but that didn't stop her. <laughs> if you've heard the Mary Lincoln episode, you know that this was just the beginning and she went off the rails with spending later. But anyway, they must have come to terms somehow because Lizzie left with the beginnings of a dress of this rose colored silk to work on. But so much had to be done to it. And the first lady changed her mind a lot. I love design clients that change their mind every five minutes and then don't understand why the timeline also has to change. But anyway. She added a blouse for her cousin. Do this dress, change these designs, and then make this blouse too. Is that okay? (laughs) Well, so much had to be done to it and the blouse that Lizzie didn't deliver it until the day of the event. And she found her new client upstairs in... I guess, basically in a bathrobe, it's called a wrapper, just a very simple, you know, like a bathrobe, freaking out upstairs. You've let me down. It's too late. How dare you? I can't go downstairs, etc. You know, it's raw nerves, mostly. Mm-hmm. And Lizzie does know that later. As of right now, they don't know each other very well yet. And how is Lizzie supposed to know that? And she wrote later that she felt humiliated. And it kind of, I'm sure it reminded her of old Anna Burl. Oh kick the cat, you know, she's upset. And sure enough, she's going to freak out on me. And it was a little distressing. Um, But two of Mary's friends convinced her to get dressed. Come on now. And she really did love the dress once it was on. And then old Abe Lincoln came in, saved the day, told his wife she looked charming. And Mrs. Keckley had just outdone herself. Crisis averted. Averted by honest Abe. <laughs> and he might have just been being a good husband. You know what I mean? Like, don't you look nice? He probably saw that she was kind of nervous about the evening. Yeah. You know, and that would calm her down a little bit. Well, hooray for Abe. Over the course of the next season, Lizzie made around 15, 16 new dresses for Mrs. Lincoln, and she became very famous around town. Mary always went to her workshop instead of having Lizzie come. I don't know why. Well, I don't know exactly why either, but I was thinking it was so A, Mary would have some place to go, you know, something to do. And B, so Mary could be seen outside of the White House by people. She very much liked the spotlight. So, oh, look, there's Mrs. Lincoln. There were always a crowd of looky-loos around, which I think disturbed Mrs. Keckley. But you're right. Mrs. Lincoln really liked it. Yeah, I'm thinking so. Well, she was so busy 
Lizzie was with orders and clients that at one point she had to hire 20 assistants. That's amazing. She also became a well-known and respected member of Washington's black community. Mrs. Keckley heard all the gossip, though. White society gossip, white house servant gossip, household gossip, but she kept her own counsel and never let secrets slip. Although I assure you, everyone was trying to get her to dig oh. the dirt. Well, Lizzie was embraced by everybody, and Mary was repulsed by everybody, which we covered. I just, I just don't know what the deal is. Though Mrs. Lincoln's actual dresses, which were, as we have said, modeled after Empress Eugenie's, the dresses were praised themselves and their construction. Mary, just so everybody knows, in case you haven't listened, could do nothing right. And often it was said that she was mutton dressed as lamb. She dressed too youthful. There was this new color. This brand new dye had been invented, magenta. A new color. That's for young people. And it reminded me of those memos that people have, you know, don't wear this over 40. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know what I have to say to those people. Oh, wait, it's a hand gesture. Sorry. (laughs) Okay, so I just wanted to read. Now, this is actually something that she wrote to her milliner, which is a hat maker. But it seems like this is the kind of directions that Mary would send to Lizzie. In writing, so you're not even talking to her. I want you to make up a purple silk velvet headdress of the exact shade of the flowers in my... And then she described this one dress. Similar to the crimson velvet one you made me with real silk velvet strings behind it, trimmed exquisitely with hardies before and behind of the exact same shade. I want it very beautiful. Exercise your taste to the utmost. Be very moderate with this purple headdress. You must not ask me over $5. A little green or a little gold wouldn't hurt it. All about a hat. So could you imagine for an entire dress how micromanager she was? So, yeah, she she had her very firm opinions, and Mrs. Keckley could knock them off. So I would love to just stay in the delightful world of fashion, but actual fighting began in April of 1861, and Lizzie received news that her son George had left school and enlisted. But there's a twist. Uh, If you were black, you could not enlist in the army, but George's skin was very white. So he enlisted as a white man and he became a private in the first Missouri volunteers, but he didn't actually do it under his name. He took the name of the man who was his biological father. My guess is so that he could fight against everything that that man stood for, you know, like, oh, you stand for slavery. I'm going to go knock out slavery. However, in another book, I read that it was a matter of pride that he had, I just hate to even say this, and please forgive me, that's the way it was written, that he felt proud that he had white blood, white ancestors, Mm -hmm. and he wanted to use that name. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And I would say if that were the case, that would make his mother very angry. I think that would make Lizzie very angry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I do too. I I just don't know. Well, so, and he also used his middle name, William. So it was as William Kirkland in a cornfield near Springfield, Missouri, that Lizzie's son died in his first battle. The Battle of Wilson's Creek or the Battle of Lexington, which is what Mary wrote to a friend where he had died at the Battle of Lexington. With hundreds of other men, it's not just him, hundreds of other men on August 10th, 1861. And Mary Lincoln was out of town, but she sent back a heartfelt letter to Lizzie on this occasion that really touched her heart. Um, And Lizzie doesn't really talk that much about her son in her autobiography. 
Mm-hmm. I, why do you think that is? Is it just hurt too badly or disappointment about the white thing or? Um, maybe his story ended, you know, cause it's, it, I mean, she could miss him and she did, but there wasn't any more story to it, you know, other than I miss him very much. Hmm. It's for, uh, editorial purposes. Well, it was about this time, and perhaps because of this crisis, that Mrs. Keckley became Elizabeth to Mrs. Lincoln. Although I don't think the reverse was true. I don't think she ever called her Mary. That would be just a bridge too far. <laughs> yeah. Um, she started watching William Tad. Uh, she was really the only one that could comfort Mary Lincoln during one of her headaches, or really, you know, ever, for any reason. <laughs> I read somewhere that she even brushed the president's hair. A, that's too much for me. And B, it was always kind of sticky out anyway. I don't know. I, how would you? Yeah, maybe the brushes weren't advanced enough. You know, there was no styling product back then. Abe didn't have much to work with. I actually thought it was really sweet. And it, you know, it showed how she was looked. I mean, yeah, it's kind of a lading and waiting kind of job, but... You know, she was looked at as a member of the family. But you know? see, we've heard that phrase before. I know. Mammy I know. Aggie was the member of the family, and I felt a sense of alarm not being there, of course. But I felt a sense of alarm when I started reading this. I'm like, this line is being crossed. You, yeah, you're losing your independent businesswoman status here. I don't know. I just felt alarmed, like something had gone south right here. But. Maybe. Well, okay, let's flip it a little different. How about, you know, she could be in Abe's orbit. Who wouldn't want to do something for Abraham Lincoln? So when the Lincoln's children, Willie and Tad, got sick with what was believed was typhoid fever, the 11-year-old son, Willie, died. It was Lizzie Keckley who had been there the whole time nursing them. It was Lizzie Keckley who was Mary's greatest comfort. And Mary wrote, if it had not been for Elizabeth, I don't know what I would have done. And she was the one that washed the poor kid and got him dressed and got him laid out on his bed after he died. I mean, that's an honored position. That's got to be hard to do for a little boy that you've just been sitting with for weeks, you know? (sighs) That is very sad. I just still, and we both have 11-year-old children and... (laughs) I still can't get over that. But we did go into this period in more detail in the Mary Lincoln episodes. Mm-hmm. So moving on to an equally stressful scenario, the war progressed, and more and more former slaves were pouring north, refugees, really, and they were called contraband. And by the time the war was over, there were about 40,000 that had made it to the city of Washington, D.C. They came with nothing. And as Lizzie put it in her autobiography, about these people, she said dependence had become a part of their second nature and independence brought responsibilities and cares that they were not used to. They came to the capital looking for liberty and many of them not knowing it when they found it. The bright, joyous dreams of freedom to the slave faded were sadly altered in the presence of that stern, practical mother reality. The transition from slavery to freedom was too sudden for them. She felt, and many of the free black population of Washington, D.C., while kind of groaning that the white population would lump all these people in with them, they would, Mm -hmm. they felt a very strong responsibility to help them. And Lizzie founded 
what was called the First Black Contraband Relief Association, which found supplies and jobs for these people. And Mary Lincoln helped her to raise money. And Lizzie canvassed and spoke all over several cities in the North. And she went on kind of on tour to spread the word about this organization. You know, she talked with her pal Frederick Douglass and got him involved, you know. And I'm wondering, I am wondering if by telling stories and then introducing Mary Lincoln and then Abraham Lincoln by proxy to these Mm -hmm. contraband camps where the president and his wife saw firsthand the misery of these people, if she might have, I mean, I know the current term is, you know, woke, but I wonder if she kind of illuminated the scenario for them because really President Lincoln was more concerned with the soldiers' welfare and just mm-hmm. hadn't really fully thought through this kind of collateral for the war. And I think it was Lizzie Keckley that kind of brought that aspect of what was happening to the forefront, to the president of the United States. She did arrange a meeting late in the war between President Lincoln and Sojourner Truth, abolitionist, women's rights activist. That's a key meeting. Oh, yeah. She was so instrumental in the Black contraband organizations that they elected her as their first president. And it was a position that she held until the organization was no longer needed. And they diversified into different charities, including a home for destitute women and children in Washington. So not only did she help the newly freed slaves that came up north, but she's helping the next generation. Okay, so Lizzie and Mary were, you know, they were pretty close. She knew about Mary's financial situations and she would say things like, uh, does Mr. Lincoln know what your your idea is with the scheme? And Mary would say, oh, I keep him in the dark and tell him when it's over. <laughs> oh, okay, when the, when the bill comes due. So after four years of their relationship growing and working together on projects, it was re-election time. And Mary was really worried that Abe wasn't going to get elected just because chiefly, she owed so much money. And if he didn't get elected, that that would come due. But Lizzie was super confident that Abe would be reelected, that she asked Mary for the right hand glove that he wears at the inauguration. And sure enough, he was reelected. And Mary gave that glove that shook 6,000 people's hands at the second inauguration of Abe Lincoln to Lizzie. What a treasure. That is a very big treasure, although I would not touch it with my bare hands (laughs) in these years of maybe we took a bath on saturday six thousand of those touching my glove i think i would burn the glove but i do (laughs) understand its historical significance and that was a very amazing gift to give to someone who on the outside was simply the person that made your dresses for you Mm -hmm. so they were very good friends well at last and finally the war was over Slavery was ended. Good had triumphed. The country had a second-term president. And there was great hope in the land at last. And, that you know, people were looking forward to the the momentum Mm -hmm. of what good things were coming. Up until that night, that fateful night at Ford's Theater, when an assassin killed the president. Abraham Lincoln was dead. Lizzie was distraught. The black community was distraught. The Moses of our people has fallen. 
Lizzie couldn't get into the White House the night of the assassination, but she was called for the next day. And she was right there and helped Mary. Um, she was stayed with her for the next five weeks when Mary refused to leave the White House and laid in bed. And she helped the family pack things up and, and get things ready for Mary to leave and go to Chicago. And Mary wanted Lizzie to go with her. But Lizzie was like, I, my business is starting to pick up again. There's there's gowns to make. And Mary told her that when Congress financially took care of her, she would take care of Lizzie. And my feeling is she kind of eventually guilted her into it because how can you look at this grieving widow and say yeah. no to her, you know? So she did. She went to Chicago with Mary and stayed for about a month. Now, this is a month that she's not making any money, but she's thinking, okay, well, Mrs. Lincoln says she'll take care of me. She'll take care of me. Mary called Lizzie her best living friend. But somehow, when the money came through, her best living friend was forgotten. And the old clothes scandal had tarnished Lizzie's name and reputation. We talked about it during the Mary Lincoln episode, but a brief synopsis is Mary Lincoln was in some financial distress and solicited her friend's help to sell some of her gowns. It ended up being kind of a firestorm of recrimination through the press. Um, mockery, indignation, betrayal. The old clothes scandal dragged Mary Lincoln through the mud and by proxy dragged Lizzie through the mud and really hurt her financially and her reputation. Mm -hmm. And Lizzie said in her autobiography, as usual, with all my expectations, I was disappointed. Everything was going so good and suddenly it's not. So what is, what is she going to do? She thinks maybe she might be able to help clear things up if she writes her memoirs. She decided to emulate her hero, Frederick Douglass. And mm -hmm. because he illuminated lots of people's minds with the stark reality of his climb out of slavery. And she felt she had a similarly educational story with a little dessert at the end where she had four years in the White House. Yes, we're going to write about slavery and struggle, but also the years with the Lincolns. And she also felt that she could clear up all this controversy and all this bad feeling that everyone had, not only about Mary Lincoln, but about her. And she worked with a white editor named James Redpath. And she, I think, innocently, made the mistake of giving him 25 or so letters from Mary Lincoln to her, just for background. See how this is, see how close we are, etc. Mm -hmm. Never maybe. realizing that he would not respect that verbal agreement. Not at all. And every letter, unedited, appears in the book, behind the scenes, 30 years a slave and four years in the White House, which is not even quite accurate because she was a slave for 37 years. And Mary was crush. She felt so betrayed. And it, nothing helped Lizzie. And it certainly didn't help Mary to have her letters put out there for everybody to see. This firestorm was appalling. I mean, it all came down to in the press, how dare you? Can, oh, can I please read this to you? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Are we to tolerate the backstairs gossip now of Negro servant girls? Mm-hmm. What family of eminence that employs a Negro is safe from such desecration? Where will it end? What family that has a servant may not in fact have its peace and happiness destroyed by such treacherous creatures as this keckly woman? This is why we should never teach them to read and write. 
Ugh. And then, this is even worse, you've ruined Mrs. Lincoln's reputation. To which she justifiably said, I have? Look at yourselves, newspapers. What have you been at since 1860? You know, I've done it, you've done it. No matter, no matter. She was done. As far as society was concerned, they would come for a fitting, and what if they accidentally said a little thing? Is is she going to put it in her next book? Forget it. And mm-hmm. Mary Lincoln felt so betrayed that not only did she never speak to Lizzie again, she never spoke of her except to call her that colored historian. Ouch. Ouch. So that was a bad idea. Ugh. All this work, her reputation is trashed. Her original goal didn't happen. She's lost her business for all intents and purposes. And she's, ugh. and she didn't get paid for it either. Well, Lizzie made her way with some sewing, certainly not for society anymore, and teaching young girls how to sew. She was able to get a domestic science teaching job at Wilberforce University in Ohio, where her son George had gone, where she stayed and worked on until she was in her 80s. You know what? There's another. We talked about Birdie, our cross path with Birdie. We get to talk about a cross path with the 1893 Columbian Exposition again. She went to Chicago when Wilberforce University had an exhibit there of of the clothes that she had sewed on on mannequins or her class had sewed. So she was at the World's Fair in Chicago. With everyone else we talked about, that (laughs) Mark Twain, (laughs) Helen Keller, everybody was there. Lillian Gilbreth. I mean, who wasn't there? Honestly, I'm sorry to say that Lizzie spent the last years of her life in a room in the basement of the Home for Destitute Women and Children in Washington, whose name should sound familiar to you, as it was Lizzie's foundation that created it in the first place. And over her dresser was a picture of Mary Lincoln in her room. Oh, she's still carrying around the thought maybe Mary's going to contact her. She never did. And she died, but, you know, she's just carrying this, this, I don't want to say a torch, but she's carrying these fond memories of the past around. Lizzie had made a quilt, I mean, over the course of years, had made a quilt out of scraps of fabric that had meant something to the two of them, scraps of fabric she had used in Mary Lincoln's dresses, and it had always been her fondest wish to present this quilt to Mary and by way of reconciliation, but she was never able to give it to her. And the last years of her life were very, very sad. And she's lost her eyesight. Everything that she had worked for in her life was uh, was gone. And there was nobody. Well, Lizzie died age 89 on May 26th, 1907, and was buried in the Harmony Cemetery in Washington, D.C. But I'm sorry to say you cannot visit her resting place there because in the 1960s, a developer paved it over. After having moved the occupants to an unmarked grave, if they didn't have any living family to oversee their more careful removal. Then in 2009, a few organizations in the area, including the Surratt Society, the Lincoln Forum, and the Black Women United in Action of Fairfax, Virginia, raised $5,000 for a proper headstone. It's not over her grave, but it's in the cemetery in Washington. So if anyone's in Washington, we would love a picture of that. Yeah, I will I will give you directions. I found directions, not like Google directions, but um the Surratt organization, it's a museum 
Actually, uh, it was Mary Surratt's house, and she was the first woman that was executed by the U.S. government. She was tried and convicted for conspiracy because John Wilkes Booth stored some of his stuff in her barn. Ah, but now her house is this museum that's dedicated to the Civil War, and its focus is on the Lincoln assassination, and they did help to raise the money for Lizzie's headstone. So I think that's a great end to that story. You know, history kind of did forget her. And as recently as the 1930s, she was thought not to have written that book at all. Oh, I know. Like she was thought not to be important. And it was only by talking to people by now old who had worked in the White House who knew all about her and enough witnesses to what had actually happened came forward that people started to to give her the proper amount of importance in Mary Lincoln's life. Mm hmm. So that's all I have about Mrs. Elizabeth Kegley. I think it's time for media, although I have to say I don't have a lot of, you know, usually I have a lot of auxiliary media and there's really not a lot. Mm-mm. Nope. In okay. addition, though, to all the books we used for the Mary Lincoln podcast, which there is an extensive list. So um, head back there and you can pick up some information there. Obviously, you need to read her autobiography, 30 Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House. And it's available on Project Gutenberg, so you don't even have to pay for it. And my library system has an extremely old copy of it in a reference section in the central library. So you have to go in, get certified that you're not going to burn it up or something. I don't know what, what they were looking for in my purse. Tootsie Rolls, that might melt on it. I don't really know. But so you... You have to go down and you can look at a really old copy. Other books, I would say the two that I found the most helpful, uh, Mrs. Lincoln and Mrs. Keckley, The Remarkable Story of the Friendship Between a First Lady and a Former Slave by Jennifer Fleischner. Yeah, that's the one I used a lot too. And I think we've used this also in the Mary Lincoln podcast. It's in those show notes too. Yeah. What's the other book you have that you liked? Let's head at this from a different way. The Black History of the White House by Clarence Lusane, L-U-S-A-N-E, talks about the Servant Corps at the White House. And even if you flash forward, way forward to that movie, The Butler, where all the butlers seem to be, as they said then, colored, and many of the servants had been there long term. I mean, that was a lifetime appointment for a lot of them. So this book covers that whole hidden side of the White House. I found that was very good. Yeah. And then Mary Lincoln's Dressmaker, Elizabeth Keckley's Remarkable Rise from Slave to White House Confidant by Becky Rutberg. Oh, that's the one I have. I'm like, oh, wait a second. I have a book here. And I'm like, gee, that title sounds really familiar. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I like this one. It was, it's kind of short, but it had a lot of information in it. A children's book that I liked is called Mrs. Lincoln's Dressmaker, The Unlikely Friendship of Elizabeth Keckley and Mary Todd Lincoln by Linda Jones. And I thought the illustrations were lovely in this, too. And there's a novel by an author named Jennifer Chavarini called, As They All Seem to Be, Mrs. Lincoln's Dressmaker. (laughs) But it is a novel. It is not a biography. So that might give you, you know, a little bit more spice than the biographies, although they're plenty spicy. Yeah, I'm not kidding. (laughs) I know. What a story. I mean, why, why aren't we hearing her story in movies? So there was a play put on. Um, this is the only non-book reference that I even have. There was a play called Mary T. and Lizzie Kay 
by a person named Tazewell Thompson, and I wondered why that sounded familiar, Tazewell, until I realized that's the costume designer for the play Hamilton, but not Tazewell Thompson. It's somebody Tazewell as a last name, but what are the chances that two people involved in the theater with that very specific name that we do in order? I, d- I just don't know. That's got to be the same person. I don't know. I'm going to do some more research and find out. Or maybe somebody knows and we won't have to research it. I thought the premise of that play was really interesting. It was what happens if they had made up, you know, Lizzie went to try and visit her at Bellevue, which she did try to do. Um, Mary wouldn't see her. But what if Mary did see her? You know, mm-hmm. what would have happened to their relationship? I thought that was an interesting premise. I'm um, always I- a sucker for alternate history, too. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, I did find one other thing that was of interest. Um, it is a video about the Mary Todd quilt. Mm-hmm. So I'll put that up on our show notes, as well as the directions to the grave and information about the Surratt house. And that's pretty much all I've got. All right. Well, in closing, let me leave you, as we often do, with a eulogy that was given in the 15th Street Presbyterian Church after Elizabeth died. She was a very remarkable woman and never failed to impress her personality upon all with whom she came in contact. She was a commanding figure, a splendid presence. She was a woman of unusual intelligence, of fine native ability. She was never at a loss for a word, and her words were always well-chosen ones. If she had had the advantages which the young people are having today, I feel sure she would have distinguished herself in some line of literature. She was a woman of remarkable energy and push. She was a woman who thoroughly respected herself. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends about us. If you leave a review on iTunes, that would be spectacular. And as discussed before, if you have connections to Amy Poehler, Meryl Streep, or Drunk History, activate your network and make two history podcasters' dreams come true. You can follow us in all the usual places at The History Chicks and find the show notes, including a link to the LibriVox audiobook of 30 Years a Slave at our website, you guessed it, thehistorychicks.com. The song in the middle is Cloud Hopping by Harper Active, and the song at the end is Worth the Fight by Marie Hines. Wipe the darkest shades away Happiness, your saving grace Ignorance won't clean the slate Won't find your final resting place Don't circle round my task at hand Take a fall when you can stand Disregard the reprimand Needing more than second hand There's bigger pictures to paint More horizons to chase Something better in searching Reaching, burning Bleed in black and white Deeper oceans to swim Unpredictable
There's bigger pictures to paint, more horizons to chase. Some